Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, hello everyone, and thank you for bearing with me. Sorry I dropped off the radar, but um, yeah, it's been a heck of a year this year, and especially this spring for sinuses. I mean, it's been really bad. The I don't know what it is, must be the pollen in the air. It's been killing me. And, uh, I mean, I sat down earlier this week and hammered out about four pages of the first uh, episode for season four, and then, bam, I was just laid low. And it's been really bad. And to tell you the truth, folks, I've been depressed because uh, you, you sleep and you get a lot of rest and you don't necessarily feel good. And then when you wake up, you've got a splitting headache. I also feel really, you know, I, I feel really irresponsible not putting out episodes now that might sound silly to some people but i've always done my best to try and get this show out there each week and so i've honestly been pretty down in the dumps not to be able to consistency consistently do that for you and not to roll out season four so yeah folks trust me i've felt really bad about it and thank you for bearing with me and i hope that you've enjoyed some of these latest episode some of the news articles that I've done I've just really not felt well at all no it's uh I do appreciate people asking but it's not anything like covid or anything like that I've had a lifelong issue with sinuses and sinuses fevers and um uh migraines and when I get those three things um and asthma it's really difficult cuz I can't do a whole lot Thankfully, as I've grown, my asthma doesn't affect me as much, but the sinuses definitely, uh, when they hit, it's just basically everything comes to a grinding halt. So I do apologize for being MIA and being off the radar. This is the double-edged sword of being a sole host. I mean, I am Tower Studios, it's just me. So I can't ask my co-host, hey, can you hop on and let everyone know I'm okay? Or hop on social media and let everyone know I'm okay? Um, or can you do a show for me, or can you edit this for me? It's all on me. And, I mean, the positive is that, obviously, I get to do what I want when I want. I can cover what I want for you folks. I don't need to get a consensus. But on the other hand, the other side of that blade is that, unfortunately, when I'm down, I'm down. I mean, uh, today was my birthday, and I felt like doing nothing, to tell you the truth. I slept a lot, Um and every time I woke up, my head was just hammering away. So uh, I was bound and determined as soon as I could get the headache at least to a manageable level that I was going to hop on here, though, and do a News of the Damned episode for you and let you know I'm still alive and I'm as good as can be. I mean, we've all got our crosses to bear, as the old saying goes, or our Achilles heels, I feel. So, yeah, I mean, it, don't get me wrong. Some people say, oh, that must suck. And, and it does. But I always try and remember that everyone, everyone I've ever known has got some kind of medical issue or something that they, they deal with, and most of them a lot worse than what I have to deal with. So, um, yeah, I, I that's how I persevere. And some people say that's the wrong way to look at it, but I I don't really care. It's it's whatever gets you through is my, my feeling, and it is what gets me through. So thank you, everyone, who's taken the time to keep listening to the episodes. I really do appreciate it. Like I say, we're over 75 countries now, which is astounding to me. I never would have thought when I started this journey 
that uh, we would have gotten there. But um, and again, I'm I I do feel horrible that the momentum has kind of ground to a halt here in the last month or so, month or month and a half, whatever you want to call it. Um, I try not to think about it too too much because then uh, the anxiety just fires because I just feel like I've I've not accomplished what I want to accomplish. So uh, yeah, uh, that that's the end of that. I'm not going to sit here and. And dribble on and moan, but I just want you folks to know from the bottom of my heart, I am sorry, and I do appreciate you sticking with me. Yes, season four is still going to be a long. No, I can't tell you exactly when. I, I'd really like to get it out sooner rather than later. Like I say, I've got four pages written now, and it's going to be. It might even be a two-part episode. So um, we'll see. I'll try and get it out as soon as I can. That's all I can say, folks. And I do feel really bad about not getting it out sooner. So aside from that, I do hope that wherever you are, you're doing well. I hope the people in the Northern Hemisphere, I hope it's cooled off. I hope you're starting to enjoy some of that October slash Halloween vibe that so many people do enjoy. And I've seen some people posting on Facebook and Instagram and that, some Halloween-themed things. So uh, yeah, it is something that I'm glad that people are looking forward to. Here, um, we're one level down from the highest level of lockdown. So basically, like today, even if I would have felt good, it's not like I could go out to dinner or anything like that for my birthday. And anything I wanted to cook, um, like if I wanted a steak or whatever, I'd have to go and stand in the line in the supermarket in a mask to get said steak to cook it. And I definitely was not in the mood for that. I was not feeling well at all. So uh, I settled for Domino's, folks. Um, cheap and nasty, especially here. Uh, but it is what it is. I mean, I'm alive. I'm above ground. Um, and I mean, that's the positive at the end of the day. So somebody did ask me how COVID's going here. So, I mean, we've got case numbers that would make people in the U.S. or most of Europe laugh as far as, you know, percentage of population or numbers. But, um, yeah, the Delta has been extremely difficult to kill the tail of. And so they're talking about all kinds of things. Um, one of the things is that our national airline here has now said that they won't let anyone fly into the country without a COVID vaccine. So it doesn't matter if you're a citizen or not, uh, you will not fly without a COVID vaccine. And there's nothing you can do about that, really, at the end of the day. Whether you agree or not, at the end of the day, if you want to fly with that airline, you don't have a choice. So it is what it is. And uh, it's starting to look like a lot more countries and a lot more businesses are just doing that. I, I've told you my feelings before. Yeah, I, I, I do feel that there is a, some merit to COVID. Like I say, I'm not one of these people who says it's harmless and it's just another cold. I, again, I'm in that middle ground that so many people don't like you to be in. And they try and shove you one way or the other. Do I think that it is like the plague apocalypse end of the world? No. But... I know enough about science and I know enough about virology that the less uh, virulent a virus is, i.e. the less people it kills, the easier it spreads. That's why the flu is so successful spreading and that's why COVID has been so successful. If COVID was killing 20 or 30 percent of the population, it wouldn't be spreading the way it is. That's why Ebola isn't all over the world because it kills like 70 percent of the people that it infects. So, yeah, it's one of those things, because if you kill off your host right away after spreading the virus, it's kind of a natural firewall, if that makes sense. So, again, I'm in that middle ground. I 
<laughs> I don't have any problem with people who want to get the vaccine. On the other hand, I do not feel that people should be forced to take a vaccine. I don't feel people should be forced to do many things in general. Yes, of course, there are some uh, examples, follow general laws and things like that, but I don't feel you should be forced to be vaccinated. Now, if a business or a company doesn't want to employ you or doesn't want to allow you in without a vaccine, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. I mean, there are people who have tried to take this to court, and it. Uh, and now I'm sorry, I'm speaking for my country where I am. Uh, there are people who have taken, um, tried to take employers in that to court and have lost. So, at the end of the day, it is what it is. And you know, honestly, honest to goodness, folks, when this all started. I really thought this was going to be another bird flu slash SARS type thing because we, my generation has lived through this and I've always been very um, cynical about these, you know, hearing about this, oh, first it was the bird flu and then it was the avian flu and SARS and all these different flus out of Southeast Asia and they never really panned out if that makes sense. Like they never really became what COVID has become and the Zika virus and all of it. But yeah, this one has definitely changed the world and the world is never going to be the same. Now, depending on your viewpoint, some people may feel it's an excuse to change the world. Some people may say that it was a plan, you know, pandemic versus a pandemic. But whatever the case may be, uh, I do know that there are governments in the world and government agencies that definitely would have taken advantage of this. And if you don't think so, um, yeah, uh, me personally... You've just got your head in the sand because there is an old saying and it is I think it's been attributed to Caesar, but it's probably wrong. But it is from classical times. It's from the Greeks or Romans. And it basically says that all power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And when you have people in office, i.e. people in parliaments and that that don't have term limits and they just roll over and roll over and roll over. They do that for a career, and they start getting this feeling that they know better than we know as the people that elect them and put them into office. And I know that because I've had conversations with many of these people in different governments around the world and some people that I know very well. Um, and they've told me that there's only basically two ways about it. Either you play ball or you don't stay in office very long. That's just the reality of it. And then you that's not even counting the other uh agencies and that that are appointees uh, that never get have to get elected so they're not going anywhere and when you're in those kind of situations that's where abuses of power in my mind do happen it occurs you get people who just kind of take things a bit too far and they just get a bit power hungry and they think oh well we're above the law and uh, yeah it's a bit sad and I don't want to go too too deep into it but that's just my two cents on it all. I know there are lots of people who listen to the program, friends and people I've had conversations with who are completely against, well, not not that they don't think there aren't viruses or anything out there, but, but they just consider this to all be a load of BS, the whole thing with COVID. Me, I do think, I believe enough that these people that are getting sick, it's definitely affecting them in the long term. And the problem is we're not going to find out right away. No different than the virus um, long-term effects not being known, the real long-term effects of people infected with COVID is not going to be known. I mean, yes, there's some people who are getting deathly ill and they're having long COVID, as it's called, and everything else. 
But there are also other people, I think, that are going to find out later down the road, oh dear, I wish I never would have got that. So me, yeah, trust me, I'm not in that camp that's like, oh, well, let's just get it and get it over with. No, 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 I definitely don't want it. And I'm going to do everything humanly possible not to um, not to contract it as best as I can. Um, as for the vaccine, um, again, uh, I try my best not to push people one way or the other. I'm not going to tell you if I have or I haven't, but um, I think if you read between the lines, you could work out pretty quickly which way of the scenario I look at things. There are people out there that get slapped with the anti-vaxxer um, slur, basically, is what it is, because it's just another way for us to divide and conquer and separate us from our fellow humans. Yes, there are people who are just bound and determined anti-vaxxers, but the general people who are questioning this vaccine are not anti-vaxxers, okay? Most of the people who are questioning that have had all of the other vaccines that have come along in the past, like the MMR and the polio and all of that, okay? It's just that they are very hesitant about a vaccine that was developed in 18 months or whatever it is, when we've always been told it takes 10 to 10 to 12 years. And on top of that, always being told that basically you know, vaccines, uh, it's more an inoculation. It's, it's not a vaccine. It's not going to keep you from getting it. And of course, that's what this is. Um, you can still get COVID. It's just supposed to lower your exposure to the damage that COVID can cause. Yeah, um, unfortunately, I think it is going to become in the longer term. Uh, I think it's just going to become like the flu. I think it's just going to mutate as time goes on, and it's just going to become a seasonal thing. And there's not going to be a whole hell of a lot that governments at large can do about it. I mean, the only time that really it would have worked was the first go-round. If everybody would have shut down at the same time and taken four weeks or whatever it was, whatever may have been needed, and stamped it out on a worldwide level, maybe we would have gotten past this. But again, when have governments been able to cooperate? I mean, even a handful of governments can barely cooperate. Um, so yeah, it's 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 not a surprise that that was never going to happen, and that was never going to be the case. Okay, so that's enough COVID gloom and doom for this episode. But yeah, uh, I just wanted to address it, because I have had some people ask me how it's going here and, and how we're affected. Uh, yeah, here still, as compared to a lot of countries, it's still more of a inconvenience or an annoyance more than anything. Now, of course, there are people out there who would have lost jobs. Hey, hey, I was one of the first ones. I lost my job way back. All right. At the very beginning of all this mess. And there'll be people who have lost their businesses and homes and everything else. And my heart does go out to you. I am empathetic, if nothing else. And I've told some people who say, oh, these businesses crying about it. And I've said to them, try and see it from their standpoint. Look at your business that you, if it was your business that you worked hard to build and your home that you worked hard to to uh, to buy and pay the mortgage on and everything else. And then all of a sudden you can't do business anymore. You've lost your job and you can't pay for things. Uh, yeah, I mean, regardless of people's debt levels and everything else, Yes, you could have argued that, oh, well, sooner or later we were going to have a pandemic of some sort, but anyone who would have predicted um, this, where we are now, anyone who would have predicted this two years ago, yeah, uh, no one would have listened anyway. 
So um, it, it's really hard to be cruel and too rough on people and say, oh, well, they should have known. They shouldn't have got overextended. I mean, who could have predicted this? All right. That's I guess that's what I'm getting at the end of the day. Who could have predicted this global mess that we're in? OK, so that's over and done with. Let's move past that. Uh, the next thing is I've got a bit of a, an announcement that is an off the cuff announcement. But I do want to make it as I do appreciate this person's contribution to the program. Everyone's busy, right? You've all got your lives out there. And like I say, just tuning in and listening to the program, I really appreciate. As of late, uh, kind of this in-between season hiatus and me not being well, there's been one person who's really gone above and beyond and has taken the time to send me many articles. Some of those articles I've got, and I can't, I'm not going to read them tonight because I've already pulled some other ones forward, but they'll be on the next episode. Now, that's Trey in Portland, Oregon. And Trey, uh, I would like to promote you to the role of chapter president for the Paranormal Sun in the great state of Oregon, and uh, chapter president and field correspondent, as you have been filling that void very well. So that is a thank you to Trey, and welcome aboard, Trey, the latest in a growing group of chapter presidents and field correspondents. Now, if any of you out there would want to know, well, hey, how did Trey get that? How do I do that? Basically, when you see articles that you think would be good on the news of the damned or subjects you'd like me to cover, get in touch with me. Basically, take the time to reach out and just be interactive. Even if it's asking me questions or you want me to be on a program or something, uh, that's how all of my friends, and I do consider them all to be friends, have become chapter presidents of the various chapters for the Paranormal Sun. Now, there is a newfangled setup on Facebook, apparently, where now you can go to a podcast page and listen to said podcast straight from that Facebook page. I'm trying to work out how to do it, and I may have screwed it up. I may not have. So if and when I can get that up and running, my friends, I'll let you know on air, and you can go and check it out. But aside from that, you want to follow this show? You want to support the Paranormal Sun? First and foremost, tell anybody out there who you think would enjoy the kind of stuff that I cover on the Paranormal Sun. Just let them know about the program. That's the first thing you can do. Second thing is, if you want to follow, check out the different social media, support the show. If you want to make a donation, you can do all those things by basically either going in the show notes of any of the episodes through a, through wherever you listen to your podcast. And there's a link at the beginning of each of those show notes to say you can follow and support the program here. Click on that link. It'll take you to a link tree, and that will take you anywhere you want to go from Facebook, Instagram, um, the webpage, which is theparanormalsun.com, on and on and on. Or you can go to Instagram, click the profile, and in the profile there's a link there. Same exact link will take you to all those places. So that's the best way to get in there and like, follow, share, subscribe, all of that kind of stuff and support the program and help me keep word of mouth going and keep it growing. I mean, we're doing we're doing really well, all things considered, and considering I have not had time to really put in a lot of dedicated time on the social media and that as of late. Um, on Facebook, on the Facebook page, we've got nearly 200 likes on there, I think which is really good. I mean, considering I don't really push the Facebook page, I more push the Facebook group. So for everyone who's liked the page, I really do appreciate it. 
there's anyone else out there, if you want to do one small thing to help, yeah, go through there. Go and click like on the page. Uh, you can go to anywhere you listen to the program and leave a five-star review or whatever, how many ever stars you think I'm worth, and leave a comment if you'd like, and leave a review. Any of those things uh, I would be greatly appreciative of. Now, we are in the month of October, and um, yeah, it's a it's a bittersweet month for me. It's a very personal month for me because my birthday falls in this month and my late mother's birthday falls in this month. And this was always considered our month to both of us. And then also you've got Halloween. So I am, look, I'm, I'm really leery about making any promises to you right now with the state of my health and the way that things have been. Now, we're supposed to have rain most of this week. And usually what happens when we get rain is it knocks the pollen out of the air. And I'm hoping that's what's going to happen. And I'm hoping that this stuff that's just been draining my battery will go away for a while and I'll feel better. But for the month of October, I will promise you this. At a bare minimum, you will get another Halloween special, a Halloween spooktacular from the Paranormal Sun. Now, the last time I did the spooktacular, I covered my stories of when I lived in the state of Illinois. This time, I'll be covering stories for you, original stories no one's heard, aside from one-on-ones from the state of California, and I've got several there to share. Now, if any of the listeners out there want to be a part of this, send me an email at the uh, theparanormalsun at gmail.com. It's that simple. Send me the story. Send me, if, if you want to catch up, you want me to record it, if you don't have a way to record it, then let me know or send me a recording and I'll make sure it gets on the air, whatever you want me to do. If you want me to read it, if you want to read it yourself, whatever, so be it, we will do it. Uh, also, in the month of October, at some point in here, I'm going to give you a small bonus. I've got to find the right story for you and I'm open to suggestions, folks. Feel free to send them through. But I'm going to read you a public domain story from H.P. Lovecraft. So it'll just be a bonus episode. It won't be a standalone episode. I need to find something that's fairly short, but at the same time really kind of hammers home that cosmic horror type uh, thing about H.P. Lovecraft that makes his stuff so uh, ambianced and has such of a gothic horror atmosphere. So if anyone out there's got any ideas, something that we could keep to uh, anywhere between half an hour and an hour would be fine. I wouldn't want to go much, much longer than that because then I'll probably get into doing multiple recording sessions and it's easier just to do one. So if you got a suggestion for a good HP Lovecraft story you'd like me to read on the air, by all means, get a hold of me. You, you know how to get a hold of me. And, um, and also, like I say, if you want to be a part of the Halloween Spooktacular, send me through some of those articles. Aside from that, or so, some of your stories, sorry, not articles. And aside from that, the one other thing, I will make a solemn vow to you. You will have, we will be into season four this month, no doubt, okay? And again, I do apologize for all the stuff that's come up, uh, but we will be doing season four this month, no doubt about it. So, folks, with all of that having been said, it is now time for the News of the Damned. So, for those of you who don't know what the News of the Damned is, there was a gentleman from the early 1900s named Charles Fort, 
And Charles Fort was interested in the same kind of things that we here at the Paranormal Sun and you, the listener, tend to be interested in. Uh, things like UFOs and lights in the sky, sea monsters, people going missing in broad daylight in front of other witnesses, strange out-of-place artifacts, strange things in the skies, and many, many more. Well, back in the day, Charles Fort gathered thousands of these stories from newspapers and periodicals of the day, and he recorded them on note notes, uh, the small note cards like he used to write recipes on. And he saved thousands of these and then published a series of either four or five books about it. And Charles Fort referred to anything in the world of the unexplained and the mysterious that science excluded or ignored. Basically, they said, well, this doesn't fit, so we're just going to ignore it. So anything like that, Charles Fort referred to as damned data. Therefore, as an homage to Charles Fort, we always refer to this segment, the new segment of the program, as the News of the Damned. Okay, folks, so as always here, I try and give you a good mix of different articles on different topics. And as always, if you want to go and check it out for yourself, there's a link to each article in the show notes. You can just click on the link in the show notes. There's a description there, and it will take you to the article. Now, this one I found beyond interesting. This isn't something that I normally have covered on the program in the past, but it definitely falls into the world of kind of... I don't know what you would want to call it, um, alternate theories, conspiracy theories, etc. Now, I've had my say before about these things on the air. I don't necessarily believe everything that comes along, but I'll listen to anyone who treats me as an adult. I'll listen to what they have to say, but I won't be railroaded into believing any certain theories or claims that I don't necessarily agree with. But this one I found very interesting, and I'm sure this would be out there by now for a lot of people who follow these kind of things. Uh, but I'm going to give you a good bit of commentary on this. But first, um, it is from Yahoo News, uh, which is, I don't do a lot from Yahoo News. Um, this one just came out on the 26th of September. And this one says, Kidnapping, Assassination, and a London Shootout Inside the CIA's Secret War Plans against WikiLeaks. And this is from Zach Dorfman, Sean D. Naylor, and Michael Ishikov. Now, just from the outset, I've heard a lot of people saying, oh, the guy was paranoid, and the government wasn't after him, and everything else. Well, from everything that I've found from looking into it, um, they have gone after him with a vengeance, both uh, Democrats and Republicans in the U.S., so it hasn't mattered who's been the president, they have gone after this guy, so obviously he has struck a nerve for them, and he has identified some things that they definitely don't want out there. As the old saying goes, you know, uh, follow the money. Well, in this case, it's follow the fire and brimstone coming out of Washington, D.C. Okay, so in 2017, as Julian Assange began his fifth year holdup in Ecuador's embassy in London, the CIA plotted to kidnap the WikiLeaks founder, 
spurring heated debate among Trump administration officials over legality and practicality of such an operation. Now, just the whole Trump administration thing, just throw that out the window. What I'm saying is it doesn't matter if it's Trump or Biden or Obama or Bush or Reagan or Carter. This stuff has been going on for years, and it doesn't take much digging into the CIA and other such groups to find out that, okay? So all I'm saying is don't don't put on your, oh, Trump's a bad guy thing, bad, orange man bad type mentality on this, because this was going on long before Trump even thought of running for president, um, and it will still be going on. It's going on now, and it will probably, I mean, no matter how long this goes on until they feel they, quote unquote, get their man, it's going to go on. It doesn't matter who the president is. It's what's going on behind the scenes, okay? So all I'm saying is, folks, in this instance, just put the political biases aside of which side of the aisle is responsible. This has been on all of their watches, okay? All of the both parties' watches, basically. Sorry, I got a bit off topic there. Okay. Some senior officials inside the CIA and the Trump administration even discussed killing Assange, going so far as to request sketches or options for how to assassinate him. Discussions over kidnapping or killing Assange occurred at the highest levels of the Trump administration, said a former senior counterintelligence official. There seemed to be no boundaries. And again, I would argue it wasn't just Trump's administration. The conversations were part of an unprecedented CIA campaign directed against WikiLeaks and its founder. The agency's multi-pronged plans also included extensive spying on WikiLeaks associates, sowing discord among the group's members, and stealing their electronic devices. While Assange has been, out, has been on the radar of U.S. intelligence agencies for years, these plans for an all-out war against him were sparked by WikiLeaks' ongoing publication of extraordinarily sensitive CIA hacking tools, known collectively as Vault 7, which the agency ultimately concluded represented the largest data loss in CIA history. President Trump's newly installed CIA director, Mike Pompeo, was seeking revenge on WikiLeaks and Assange, who had sought refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy since 2012 to avoid extradition to Sweden on rape allegations he denied. Pompeo and other top agency leaders were completely detached from reality because they were so embarrassed about Vault 7, said a former Trump national security official. They were seeing blood, and indeed they were, and indeed these three-letter agencies have been for years and will continue to as long as they exist. The CIA's fury at WikiLeaks led Pompeo to publicly describe the group in 2017 as a non-state hostile intelligence service. More than just a provocative talking point, the designation opened the door for agency operatives to take far more aggressive actions, treating the organization as it does adversary spy services, former intelligence officials told Yahoo News. Within months, U.S. spies were monitoring the communications and movements of numerous WikiLeaks personnel, including audio and visual surveillance of Assange himself, according to former officials. The Yahoo News investigation, based on conversations with more than 30 former U.S. officials, eight of whom described details of the CIA's proposals to abduct Assange, reveals for the first time one of the most contentious intelligence debates of the Trump presidency. And again, that whole Trump presidency, they love to keep going back to Trump. Go back to the CIA wanting to invade Cuba when Kennedy was in the White House. 
long before I was born. And I'm pretty sure Kennedy was a Democrat. Um, not not certain, folks, but I'm just pretty sure I'm being sarcastic. Of course, he was a Democrat. The CIA has always done whatever they feel is best, regardless of who's nominally in charge. All right. And exposes new details about the U.S. government's war on WikiLeaks. It was a campaign spearheaded by Pompeo that bent important legal structures. <laughs> he broke, I'd say, more than bent potentially jeopardized the Justice Department's work towards prosecuting Assange and risked a damaging episode in the UK, the US's closest ally. The CIA declined to comment. Pompeo did not respond to requests for comment. As an American citizen, I find it absolutely outrageous that our government would be contemplating kidnapping or assassinating someone without any judicial process simply because he had published truthful information, Barry Pollack, Assange's US lawyer, told Yahoo News. Well, Barry Pollack, I'm not shocked at all, and it's been going on longer than anyone of us has been alive, pretty much. I mean, there might be a handful that were alive before these um, agencies kind of had unchecked power. It's been going on a very long time. Assange is now housed in a London prison as the courts there decide on a U.S. request to extradite the WikiLeaks founder on charges of attempting to help former U.S. Army analyst Chelsea Manning break into classified computer networks and conspiring to obtain and publish classified documents in violation of the Espionage Act. Okay, first off, he was told in January that that was it. He wasn't going to be extradited. Then in July, the UK courts basically told the US, "Oh, you can uh, you can try and you 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 can challenge that, and you can." It's like either he either you're protecting his rights and he's not going to be extradited, or he can be extradited. They they just keep flip-flopping. It's like the pressure gets put on, and it's like, oh, well, I guess you can file another appeal, and we'll go from there. But I'll do more of that in the wrap-up. Sorry, folks. I'm just a bit aggravated about this topic. Pompeo and other top agency leaders were completely detached from reality. Okay, sorry. That's just a big quote in bold that I've already covered over. My hope and, ex and expectation is that the UK courts will consider this information, and it will further bolster its decision not to extradite to the US, Pollock added. There is no indication that the most extreme measures targeting Assange were ever approved, in part because of objections from White House lawyers. But the agency's WikiLeaks proposals so worried some administration officials that they quietly reached out to staffers and members of Congress on the House and Senate Intelligence Committees to alert them to what Pompeo was suggesting. There were serious intel oversight concerns that were being raised through this escapade, says a Trump national security official. Some National Security Council officials worried that the CIA's proposals to kidnap Assange would not only be illegal, but also might jeopardize the prosecution of the WikiLeaks founder. Concerned the CIA's plans would derail a potential criminal case, the Justice Department expedited the crafting of charges against Assange to ensure that they were in place if he was brought to the U.S. In late 2017, in the midst of the debate over kidnapping and other extreme measures, the agency's plans were upended when U.S. officials picked up what they viewed as alarming reports that Russian intelligence operatives were preparing to sneak Assange out of the U.K. and spirit him away to Moscow. The intelligence reporting about a possible breakout was viewed as credible at the highest levels of the U.S. government. At the time, Ecuadorian officials had begun, begun efforts to grant Assange diplomatic status as part of a scheme to give him cover to leave the embassy and fly to Moscow to serve in the country's Russian mission. 
In response, the CIA and White House began preparing for a number of scenarios to foil Assange's Russian departure plans, according to three former officials. Those included potential gun battles with Kremlin operatives on the streets of London. What is this, James Bond? For Christ... Oh. Crashing a car into a Russian diplomatic vehicle transporting Assange and then grabbing him and shooting out the tires of a Russian plane carrying Assange before it could take off from Moscow. U.S. officials asked their British counterparts to do the shooting if gunfire was required, and the British agreed, according to a former senior administration official. Oh, Lord. Again, it just goes to show, folks, what I keep telling you and what I've known for years. What they do behind the scenes is very different from what they tell us they do up front. They basically are a law unto themselves. We had all sorts of reasons to believe he was contemplating getting the hell out of there, said the former senior administration official, adding that one report said Assange might try to escape the embassy hidden in a laundry cart. It was going to be like a prison break movie. The intrigue over a potential Assange escape set off a wild scramble among rival spy agencies in London. American, British, and Russian agencies, among others, stationed undercover operatives around the Ecuadorian embassy. In the Russians' case, it was to facilitate a breakout. For the U.S. and Allied services, it was to block such an escape. It was beyond comical, said the former senior official. It got to the point where every human being in a three-block radius was working for one of the intelligence services, whether they were street sweepers or police officers or security cards. White House officials briefed Trump and warned him that the matter could provoke an international incident, or worse. We told him this is going to get ugly, said the former official. As the debate over WikiLeaks intensified, some in the White House worried that the campaign against the organization would end up weakening America, as one Trump national security official put it, by lowering barriers that prevent the government from targeting mainstream journalists and news organizations, said former officials. Yeah. Again, um, I'll bite my tongue till the end. The fear at the National Security Council, the former office official said, could be summed up as, where does this stop? When WikiLeaks launched its website in December of, 20, of 2006, it was nearly unprecedented model. Anyone anywhere could submit materials anonymously for publication, and so they did, on topics ranging from secret fraternity rights to details of the U.S. government's Guantanamo Bay detainee operations. Yet Assange, the lanky Australian activist who led the organization, didn't get much attention until 2010, when WikiLeaks released gun camera footage of a 2007 airstrike by U.S. Army helicopters in Baghdad that killed at least a dozen people, including two Reuters journalists and wounded two young children. The Pentagon refused to release the dramatic video, but someone had provided it to WikiLeaks. Yeah, and we can't have you putting out uh, war crime footage, so um, yeah, time to put the thumb on your ass, Mr. Assange. Later that year, WikiLeaks also published several caches of classified and sensitive U.S. government documents related to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, as well as more than 250,000 U.S. diplomatic cables. Assange was hailed in some circles as a hero, and in others as a villain. For U.S. intelligence and law enforcement agencies, the question was how to deal with the group, which operated differently than typical news outlets. The problem posed by WikiLeaks was, there wasn't anything like it, said a former intelligence official. How to define WikiLeaks has long, been, has long confounded everyone from government officials to press advocates. Some view it as an independent journalistic institution, while others asserted it is a handmaiden to foreign spy services. 
There's not a journalistic organization. They're nowhere near it, William Ivan Ivana Ivanina. Sorry. Uh, I'm struggling pronouncing that last name. We'll just say E. William E., who retired as the U.S.'s top counterintelligence official in early 2021, told Yahoo News in an interview. E. declined to discuss specific U.S. proposals regarding Assange or WikiLeaks. But the Obama administration, fearful of the consequences for press freedom and chastened by the blowback from its own aggressive leak hunts, restricted investigations into Assange and WikiLeaks. Yeah, right. We were stagnated for years, said E. There was a reticent, uh, a reticence in the Obama administration at a high level to allow agencies to engage in certain kinds of intelligence collection against WikiLeaks, including signals and cyber operations, he said. Well, if I know anything about those three-letter agencies, it went on anyway. That began to change in 2013, when Edward Snowden, a national security agency contractor, fled to Hong Kong with a massive trove of classified materials, some of which revealed that the U.S. government was illegally spying on Americans. WikiLeaks helped arrange Snowden's escape from to Russia from Hong Kong. A WikiLeaks editor also accompanied Snowden to Russia, staying with him during his 39-day and forced stay at a Moscow airport and living with him for three months after Russia granted Snowden asylum. In the wake of the Snowden revelations, the Obama administration allowed the intelligence community to prioritize collection on WikiLeaks. According to E, now CEO of the E Group, previously, if the FBI needed a search warrant to go into the group's databases in the U.S. or wanted to use subpoena power or a national security letter to gain access to WikiLeaks-related financial records, that wasn't going to happen, another former senior counterintelligence officer said. That changed after 2013. Yeah, again, I'll bite my tongue. From that point onward, U.S. intelligence worked closely with friendly spy agencies to build a picture of WikiLeaks' network of contacts and tie it back to hostile state intelligence services, E said. The CIA assembled a group of analysts known unofficially as the WikiLeaks team in its Office of Transitional Issues with a mission to examine the organization, according to a former agency official. Still chafing at the limits in place, top intelligence officials lobbied the White House to redefine WikiLeaks and some high-profile journalists as information brokers, which would have opened up the use of more investigative tools against them, potentially paving the way for their prosecution, according to former officials. It was a step in the direction of showing a court, if we got that far, that we were dealing with agents of a foreign power, a former senior counterintelligence official said. Among the journalists some U.S. officials wanted to designate as information brokers were Glenn Greenwald, then a columnist for The Guardian, and Laura Poitras, a documentary filmmaker who had been instrumental in publishing documents provided by Snowden. Is WikiLeaks a journalist outlet? Are Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald truly journalists? The former official said, We tried to change the definition of them, and, preached, and I preached this to the White House and got rejected. The Obama administration's policy was, If their published works out there, doesn't matter the venue, then we have to treat them as First Amendment-protected individuals the former senior counterintelligence official said. There were some exceptions to that rule, but they were very, very, very few and far between. WikiLeaks, the administration decided, did not fit that exception. In a statement to Yahoo News, Poitras said that reported attempts to classify herself, Greenwald, and Assange as information brokers rather than journalists are bone-chilling and a threat to journalists worldwide. That the CIA also conspired to seek the rendition and extra and 
and extrajudicial assassination of Julian Assange is a state-sponsored crime against the press, she added. Okay, folks, I've had a bit of a scroll through this, and this article is probably as long, if not longer, than what I've already done, and I've already spent about 15 minutes on this article. So I'm not going to read it in its entirety, but if you want, you can go and follow the link in the show notes. But basically, these are my thoughts on it. Here you've got someone who is not a U.S. entity. He's from Australia. They have had a, for lack of a better term, they have been foaming at the mouth to get him extradited to the U.S. They've already picked out the Supermax prison they want him to go to in Colorado, and they have been for a very long time. Do I believe that countries have a right to defend themselves from espionage, etc.? Yeah, I do. Um on a very basic level. But if you've got people leaking things and giving up things, you can't have it both ways is what I'm saying. So the same people who will pat themselves on the back and say it was great that you had whistleblowers during Watergate and whistleblowers through some of these other things can't get upset in my mind when you've got things like this leaked. Yes, there are some very specific things. So let's say, for example, Somebody leaked to WikiLeaks uh, the exact composition of an M1 Abrams tank and its weak spots and everything else. I fully get that that is something a little bit different. And to the U.S. military and to the U.S. people at large, that's basically treason. But again, it's not WikiLeaks that is quote-unquote treasonous. It's the people who leak it. Now, again, I'm not saying they should go and put that information out there. I'm just saying it is a fine line. And when you go contemplating assassinating these people or having gunfights with with Russian security agencies on the streets of London, goodness gracious, come on. A lot of this, again, hindsight's twenty twenty, and again, they make big paychecks. I don't. But I would think that this could have been solved a lot easier by previously let's just say allowing him to stay out there in the community monitor him and maybe you've got hackers working on taking down the website or, or keeping things under control but as soon as you force a man to basically hole up in an embassy and then you're trying to extradite him and trying to put him in prison for something that he feels is not right and then you're trying to kill him how do you think that that person is going to react so this has been hashed to me. And again, we're not blaming any certain administration. It's everyone that's been involved since this started, which is three administrations. Um, yeah, the three-letter agencies have been, have, have lacked proper oversight for a long time. That's my personal opinion. You go back and look at some of the stuff that's happened in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War stuff that happened in Afghanistan during the Russian occupation and the Mujahideen and on and on and on all over the world. They basically had a free hand to do what they want. And that's why I always laugh when they say things like, oh, we wouldn't have done that because we couldn't have got approval from the White House. Yeah. And you didn't have approval from the White House to plan an invasion of Cuba. You didn't have approval from the White House to plan the assassination of Fidel Castro with poisoned cigars and needles and all kinds of stuff. So don't give me that whole, oh, well, we w never would have done that, but come on. 
yeah, you can get that kind of naivete out there to the toddlers and get them to believe it, but I'm not believing it for a second. You'll be doing whatever you want, basically, uh, short of just egregious murder in public. You'll you'll basically do what you want when you want, and you're not going to let the administration or the Department of Justice or anyone else tell you what to do. You'll play ball here and there, but there'll be lots of things they've been involved in over the years that is dirty laundry they don't want out there. So that's my thoughts on that, folks. And again, I do not think that WikiLeaks or Julian Assange are perfect people or that they're saints and that uh, the uh, intelligence agencies are sinners. But I do feel there's fault on both sides here. And going around and plotting to murder someone because you're basically pissed off because they've embarrassed you and now it's gotten personal and now we're going to assassinate them. Now, if you could track back, so if you could say we you leaked X and that led to X amount of people dying, be it soldiers or uh, civilians, now maybe I'd feel a little bit differently. But at this point, that's not the discussion we're having. So keep an eye on it, and um, I would not be shocked if he gets extradited in the end, even though, like I said, he was told in January he won't be extradited. Oh, now, lo and behold, oh, yeah, six months later, yeah, that's okay. You can uh, file to get him extradited again. It is a bit of a joke. It's a bit like that idiot um, woman who killed that boy in the UK and basically had diplomatic immunity because her husband worked in, I believe, in the Air Force on a British military base. So American soldier, American wife, and she basically fled to the U.S. and the U.S. refused to extradite her, which to me is abhorrent. And it is basically... The opposite of justice, that is the kind of crap that just cannot go unpunished in this day and age. Yeah, maybe it was an accident, and maybe she didn't plan it, but she fled to the U.S., and they asked her to be extradited for trial, and they basically said, oh, no, 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 she's not going back to the U.K. And yet, in the meanwhile, they're getting pissed off because the U.K. doesn't want to release someone like Assange, who you have now been caught trying to murder, or plotting to murder, and also... uh, (laughs) planning to have running gunfights with Russian intelligence services in the streets of London. Yeah, uh, so there's the um, <laughs> there's the script for your next James Bond movie, my friends. Uh, you can't make this stuff up sometimes, I'll tell you. Okay, folks, so now here we are on to the next one, which is from Atlas Obscura, and they've got quite a few good articles over there. Um, I've had Trey send me some in the past, and I also try and get on there and, and find them. And this one's quite interesting. And this one says, why were these mysterious stone orbs stashed all over Neolithic Britain? Two new ones just turned up in a tomb on a remote Scottish island. By Hannah Seo, September 30th, 2021. And a person is holding it in their hand. Looks to be about the size of a softball. Maybe a little bit smaller than a softball. And it says, two of these polished stone balls were found in a Neolithic tomb on a remote Scottish island. If you like to sail the island of Sanday in the Orkney archipelago in northern Scotland, I've had listeners from the Orkneys, believe it or not, folks, you'll see the silhouettes of neighboring islands on the horizon. Upon arrival, you'll see white, sandy beaches that trail into rough, once agricultural terrain and experience its erratic weather. Sun, then fog, then rain, then clear skies all in the same day. Yeah, we've had that here. I think most of you have probably had that. Nestled there on a shallow cliff is a mound of earth and rocks, a prehistoric tomb dating to around 3500 B.C. 
So that's 5,500 years ago, my friends. The tomb sits on a low-lying peninsula, where growing storms and agitating seas are eroding it away. So in August and September 2021, a group of archaeologists made their way there, to Tresnes, the site of the lone Neolithic tomb, with their sights set on excavation. The research team was anxious to study the tomb before it was lost. It contains a single chamber, presumably for someone important. What we discovered was an exceptionally well-preserved monument, says Hugo Anderson Weimark, a curator of prehistory at National Museum Scotland, who co-led the research. There were no remains, but inside the monument were a couple rare finds, two polished stone balls, each about the size of a tennis ball. Well, they must whoever that was then has a small hand, because it looked uh, it filled their hand, it looked bigger than a baseball to me. The other leading archaeologist of the excavations, Vicky Cummings of the University of Central Lancashire, unearthed both of the orbs herself. With the first, she remembers pulling her trowel back and immediately noticing that something was different. It was really exciting, she says. I said after the first one, I'll never find anything like that again in my career. And then I found another one. It's very rare that you would find two such amazing objects. It's just incredible. But these two balls aren't exactly a unique find. They're part of a widely distributed mystery left by the Neolithic inhabitants of the British Isles. More than 500 stone balls like them have been discovered to date. For centuries, no one paid them much attention. Farmers or builders would randomly discover them in fields, and then either keep them or donate them without another thought. It wasn't until archaeologist Sir Daniel Wilson published illustrations of the orbs in 1851 that people began to take notice. Suddenly you saw from 1850 onwards lots of them coming out of the woodwork, says Anderson Weimark. There were about 100 known by the early 20th century. But because of the way that many of them were found, without archaeological context, scholars didn't know where most came from. That's why Cummings was so floored of what she found. Discovering not only not only one but two in their original location in a tomb is incredible. Only a few have ever been found in the original context. Also, most of the 20 balls that have been found in the Orkney Islands are carved and etched with patterns and designs. These, on the other hand, were polished smooth. The most famous of all these artic articles is, sorry, artifacts is the Towie Ball. This whimsically named object is an ornately carved, lobed orb discovered in northeast Scotland in 1860 and likely had some deep cultural meaning to the people who made or handled it some 5,000 years ago. Other stone orbs are covered in little stud-like projections. National Museum Scotland has 3D models of some of them. Anderson Weimark says they're some of the finest examples of Neolithic art. The smooth and carved stone balls are part of different but related Neolithic traditions, says Anderson Weimark. The few examples of polished orbs tend to be found along the west coast, appear to be older, and are usually associated with graves. The carved balls, on the other hand, are more common in the east are from later parts of the Neolithic and found in settlements, but the decorations of them often match decorations found on other types of artifacts at gravesites. No one knows exactly what the stone balls are for. Anderson Weimark says there have probably been 25 to 30 theories over the years. Weights and measures, weapons, tools for winding nets, and braiding ropes. The theory he and Cummings support is that they were markers of statues and importance. The sheer amount of time, effort, and care it would have taken to create a stone ball, even just a plain polished one, says Cummings, 
attest to the status they must have carried, but it's also likely their meaning and use evolved over time. I think the answer is, if you have one fixed idea for what these were used for, then it's probably not going to prove to be right, because we're dealing with objects that were used over several hundred years, says Anderson Weimark. Plus, they've been found all over the British Isles, so they might have been used in different ways in different places. But regardless of where you look, they clearly meant a lot to the communities who had them, he says. People were fascinated with the stone balls, says Cummings, because they seem both tangible and intangible, familiar and unfamiliar all in one go. They're beautiful, tactile, and heavier than people think, and people become mesmerized when they touch them. People in the past seem very tangible. Sorry. Yeah. People in the past seem very tangible. They seem very knowable, Cummings said. But actually, when you start to study the kind of things they get up to, they are very, very strange. They are almost airy alien in their differences from us nowadays. The stone balls capture the difference with just the right combination of the mundane and the mysterious. So, uh, yeah, interesting article there, folks. And there's always something new being discovered. There's several other articles here I could read, but we'll save those for another episode of the News of the Damned. So now we're, we're going to move into this next article that I found that I think you will find quite interesting. It's a bit of a photo gallery, but I'm going to read it with you as we go through and I'll identify anything you may not have heard of before. Okay, folks, I keep getting a <clears throat> bit of a hack in my throat, but bear with me. I'm going to try and power through this. So this is from Esquire magazine, and it says the 30 most shocking government secrets, and it's from Charlotte Chilton. And then there's a gallery. So it says, there are enough conspiracy theories online to keep you reading for a lifetime. And trust us, you don't want to fall down that rabbit hole. And that is true. But what does it mean when some of the rumors and secrets are actually confirmed? Thanks to declassified documents, government leaks, and revealing reports, we've learned more about our government's secret programs than ever before. From the FBI's fall on Bigfoot to the CIA's covert dragonfly, sometimes the truth can be stranger than fiction, which is very, very true. So, the first one. The Pentagon does have a UFO program. Among some of the Pentagon's most secretive programs is the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. A tip for short, the program was dedicated to investigate reports of unidentified flying objects for years. It was never formally acknowledged by the Department of Defense. The agency claimed the program stopped receiving funds in 2012. However, many believe it continues to operate to this day, and I would argue that it probably does. <clears throat> Number two, Apple's top secret iPod. According to former Apple software engineer David Scheyer, the tech company worked with the U.S. Department of Energy to convert to a on a covert project back in 2005. The special iPod was allegedly supposed to act as a Geiger counter by testing radiation levels in the air. He shared in tidbits, You could walk around a city casually listening to your iTunes while recording evidence of radioactivity, scanning for smuggled or stolen uranium, for instance, or evidence of a dirty bomb development program. With no chance that the press or public would get wind of what was happening, Shea wrote. And folks, believe it or not, I've never heard of that, but makes sense. Now they probably do it with phones. <clears throat> Number three, the FBI was tracking Bigfoot. 
Apparently, the FBI really does have a file on everyone, including mystical creatures like Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Deep within the FBI's Freedom of Information Library, you can track down the agency's file on Bigfoot. Files are released only when a subject is deceased, which not only points to the figure being real, but also suggests that the agency believes it is dead. Right. The Playing Card Escape During World War II, the U.S. and Britain snuck Allied prisoners of war escape maps using playing cards. The papers containing detailed escape routes were hidden in between the layers of cards. The Geneva Convention stated Christmas care packages were allowed to be delivered to POWs, which is how the deck of cards went undetected. Now, I'd heard of that one, folks, and also there is that famous scene from Stalag 17, for those of you who have seen it. Um, I think it was in that movie. If not, it was in another one, and they basically smuggled these notes in between the layers of a chessboard, uh, meaning notes as in bills, uh, English pounds or uh, U.S. dollars. I think they were... No, they wouldn't have been pounds. I think they were um, German marks. If I got that wrong, it might have been in a book I read, so I do apologize. The Navy's UFO videos weren't supposed to be released. There are at least three videos released by the U.S. Navy documenting UFO activity. However, those videos were never supposed to have been leaked. Along with a confirmation that the videos were taken by Navy pilots and capture unexplained aerial phenomena, the agency also admitted the footage was never intended for the public to see. No shock there. Witnesses claim there's more to the Nimitz UFO encounters. Most people were astonished after watching the three Navy UFO videos, a.k.a. the Nimitz UFO encounters, but many speculate that there's way more to the incident than previously seen. After watching the videos in full, witnesses claim there is a longer video still to be released, in which the object performed a number of physically impossible maneuvers. Again, zero shock uh, if that comes out in my estimation. The CIA built a robot dragonfly. Thanks to James Bond and other spy movies, our imaginations are filled with possibilities for covert devices on the spy trade. But the reality is so much better than imagined. At least that's how we felt when the CIA released never-before-seen devices from the 1970s at the CIA Museum in Washington, D.C. Among the gadgets was a drone-like dragonfly known by the CIA as the Insect Insectothopter. So if that's what they'll let you know about, I'm sure they've got something much more successful. Right. And a robot catfish. Meet Charlie, the CIA's top secret catfish. The agency built the, robo the robotic part submarine in the 90s to see if it was possible to build an uncrewed underwater vehicle. Charlie's purpose was to collect water samples without being detected, but it is unclear if it ever succeeded. Since the agent controlling the unmanned vehicle needed to be nearby for it to work, as well as catfish not being very common in the 90s, it can be assumed that the invention was not too useful. Um, catfish were very common in the 90s. But what I would argue is, uh, and, and they're all over the world, we even have them here, but maybe in places like Russia and that, they wouldn't have been too common. And more importantly, if you have to have somebody nearby, I'm sure it's got a very limited range, so maybe even they'd have to be in the water with it, which would limit its efficiency. But maybe they've succeeded in perfecting it now. The military's attempt at weaponizing lightning. Again, no shock here. 
Imagine a weapon that couldn't be traced to the attacker. That was the idea be behind the CIA's past attempt at weaponizing lightning, according to a declassified document from 1967. So way back then, folks, 50 years ago. While the invention turned out to be functional, the agency never fulfilled the program. More than 50, 55 years ago, roughly. The Pentagon is possibly in possession of off-world vehicles. The Pentagon has always remained tight-lipped on whether or not they even there even is a funded UFO program. That being said, claims have been made that the government is in possession of off-world vehicles. Astrophysicist Eric Davis, who consulted for the Pentagon's UFO program, examined numerous materials that he deems off-world vehicles not made on this Earth. Lost Plutonium in the Himalayas the United States and India came together for a joint mission in the 1960s that, if successful, would monitor China's nuclear development. The goal was to install radioactive isotope PU-238-powered sensors, but hazardous conditions forced the team to evacuate the Himalayas before the installation was complete. When they returned, the sensors had vanished. No one has tracked down the plutonium devices, but locals believe they are still active in the area and are responsible for melting mountain caps that are causing massive floods. What would not surprise me, folks. Uh, there's also a small nuclear reactor I know that was abandoned in Greenland, and there have been some other really bad ideas elsewhere in the world that uh, they've done with nuclear items in the past. The mysterious dark mass that wasn't a submarine. Retired Navy Commander David Fravor recalled an unusual experience that can only be described as terrifying. In the 90s, he was assigned to retrieve BQM aerial target drones and submarine telemetry torpedoes from the ocean. A, hel a helicopter pilot was tasked to do the same. Both men witnessed a large dark mass, circular in shape, descending towards the surface. When they were attempting to hook the torpedo, and both swear it wasn't a submarine, in the helicopter pilot's encounter, the object sucked up the torpedo, never to be recovered. Yeah, well, keep trying to tell people it's not all the planet Venus, but uh, what can you do? The existence of Iran's military dolphins. Oh, this is a good one. While many are concerned over Iran's nuclear capabilities, the military is also keeping a watchful eye on its sea. In 2000, Iran purchased a fleet of military-trained dolphins from Russia, and no one knows whether they're alive or not today. The dolphins were originally trained by the Soviet Union to kill and attack enemy ships, and the U.S. Navy was doing the same thing back in the 60s, folks. So, again, there is no moral ambiguity here. We are just all in on any weapon that uh, we can use for things like this. The unknown location of a Russian anti-aircraft missile. The U.S. experienced a huge win for the intelligence com community in June 2020 by acquiring Russia's most advanced anti-aircraft missile, the Pantsir S-1 from Libyan forces. The Pantsir S-1 is a low-altitude air defense system mounted on the back of a military truck. It has recently been used in Libyan and Syrian war zones. The U.S. Air Force transported the weapon out of the country and has since moved it to an unknown location. The U.S. military once funded a flying saucer program. Yep. While the public has always been fascinated with the government's investigation of UFOs, the fact that the military once funded the design of its own flying saucers hasn't been made public until recently. 
The secret program was launched by the military in the 1950s and was titled Project 1794. The mission? A supersonic aircraft that could uniquely combat Soviet bombers. The Air Force built a secret fighter jet. The U.S. Air Force surprised the public when it announced the new arrival of a announced the arrival of a new fighter jet in 2020. The aircraft was secretly designed, built, and tested by the Next Generation Air Dominance Program. No other information about the fighter jet has been released, other than the fact that it's here and supposedly breaking records and breaking budgets, no doubt. But um, yeah, that is quite an interesting one. And uh, you just look back at the Stealth and the Blackhawk, it's not all that unknown that very few people know about these things when they're top secret. The Cold War Era's Constant Peg Program Although it's declassified now, the government ran a top-secret training program during the Cold War known as the Constant Peg Program. In said program, U.S. pilots trained with the MiG jets, former Soviet fighter jets, not only did the government acquire these aircraft secretly, they were purchased so that the U.S. Air Force best pilots could familiarize themselves with the enemy technology and learn how to beat the jets in combat in case of in case World War III occurred. Well, that happened during World War II as well, and on and on and on, probably back to World War I, I would say, but I know for a fact that happened in World War II on both sides. The CIA used secret drones against Soviet SA-2 missiles. A very real threat to the U.S. during the Vietnam War was the Soviet Union's SA-2 missiles, shown in a 2003 photo. I just got a photo of it there, obviously. To defeat them, the, US, the CIA concocted the secret mission, a united effort to steal pertinent data information. The mission only lasted 200 milliseconds, and at first glance appeared to be a Soviet victory. However, the CIA's SAM sniffer was really a suicide drone. An unmanned drone disguised as a U-2 spy plane to lure a Soviet missile strike. The goal was to record the radar guidance and proximity fuse information of the attack. After a successful mission in 1966, all of the information was used to create a warning receiver to prevent the SA-2 missile from hitting their aircraft. <clears throat> the Air Force's unmanned space plane, and Trey, you were asking me about this not too long ago. Since 2010, the U.S. Air Force has been launching an unmanned space plane into orbit to carry out classified tests. The aircraft known as the X-37B Orbital Test Vehicle 5, or OTV-5, has carried out five missions since it initially launched, the last spending a record-breaking 780 days in orbit. So what were they doing up there? I don't think they're making snow cones. The CIA's Soviet-era bird drone concept. With the Cold War brought tons of covert inventions, and we've already talked about some of these, some of which were only recently declassified. The CIA's Project Aqualine, for example, was intended to create a fleet of bird drones that would act as spy planes and couriers in the Cold War. The invention, although never completed, was intended to be nuclear-powered so they could stay in the air for up to a month. Everything nuclear power. Yeah. Anyway... The A-12 Oxcart aircraft tested at Area 51, and that's what I was going to say. That's why I know about this, because it was tested at Area 51. The A-12 Oxcart aircraft was created by the U.S. in 1963 and was built for reconnaissance missions, especially those at high altitudes requiring quick maneuvering. Throughout its design, construction, and testing phases, 
the A-12 was housed at Area 51. It was considered the top reconnaissance aircraft until 1968, when the government favored the SR-71 for its longer range. The Air Force's Top Secret Space Station Back when the NASA space program was all over the news in the 60s, the U.S. Air Force was simultaneously working on a more covert program. The Manned Orbiting Laboratory was a top-secret U.S. Air Force initiative, with the main objective being to serve as a manned satellite to spy against the Soviet Union. The shuttle never officially launched, and the program was shut down in 1969. However, thanks to declassified documents, we can now see how the government intended to keep a watchful eye over the Soviet Union, yet yeah, probably nuclear-powered as well. A Drone Attack from the Congolese as the Cold War dragged on, the Soviet Union and the U.S. began fighting for control of a newly independent Congo. Throughout the conflict, the CIA sent in a number of drones for reconnaissance. Thanks to CIA declassified documents, a previously unknown attack on these drones has been released. And it's not what you'd think. The CIA spy plane was attacked with the drone spear, and the event was even included in President Truman's briefing. Hey man, don't mess with those, uh, don't mess with them, um... Rocks, spears, boomerangs, um, they'll, they'll take out a, a drone, especially something that small, I'd say. The quality of U.S. of U.S. satellite capabilities. There are thousands of satellites in Earth's orbit right now, and hundreds are operated by the U.S. military. While the public has known of their presence for years, the actual capabilities of our spy satellites were unknown until former President Donald Trump tweeted a classified image in September 2019. From the image of the exploded rocket launch in Iran, experts were quick to identify the satellite as one of the U.S.'s KH-11 reconnaissance satellites, which for obvious reasons there's not a lot of information about. Okay, <clears throat> I knew someone who worked at one of these think tanks slash weapons programs in Southern California uh, through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, basically up until the end of the Cold War and a little bit after, and then he retired. And I asked him about the satellites because this company, and I'm not going to say the company, I'm not going to say the man's name, obviously. I said to him, how good are the satellites? Because you see it in the spy movies and that. And he said, uh, I, I said, you know, for example, can you read a number plate from space, a uh, license plate? He said, no, no, it's not that good. He goes, but if you walk outside and you look at your watch and the satellite's overhead at that time, I can tell you what time your watch says. So uh, take it as you may, folks, but that's from someone who I have a lot of faith in. And I've got no doubt that by now, uh, pretty much anything you don't want divulged, you shouldn't be doing outside. Okay, next one, the end of Project Blue Book. In 1952, the U.S. Air Force launched its third UFO program, Project Blue Book. After the previous program marked nearly 23% of UFO cases unexplained, it became the mission of Project Blue Book to debunk UFO inquiries and make them go away. And yet we've covered that. Friends like uh, Philip J. Class and such. Although the Air Force shut down the program in 1969, the government continued to record encounters. An unidentified object was caught on film in 2018. The world was shocked when a leaked video of an unidentified aerial phenomena appeared in 2020, but the government was far less surprised, as they knew about the footage for two years. Taken 
by from what is believed to be an FA-18 pilot. The object is described as cube-shaped. Reports that show both the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force and the Department of Defense's UAP unit were investigating the matter. Sorry, folks. The leak of psychoelectric weapons documents. It cannot be confirmed or denied that the government dabbles in psychoelectric weapons and remote mind control. However, a Washington State Fusion Center official did accidentally share diagrams about these subjects with a journalist in 2018. While it seems to be a massive oversight, the documents were not deemed official, and the WSFC did not return requests for comment. Yeah. We'll get to that at some point, folks, um, in the future, some of those subjects, but the CIA and other agencies did a lot of things that might sound crazy on the outside, but basically anything to get a advantage, especially during the Cold War. The Russian spy who leaked atomic bomb information. What documents finally declassified the identity of the fourth Soviet spy was <clears throat> recently revealed. Sorry, folks. Um, I haven't been on the mic for a while, so it uh, keeps me coughing. Okay, uh, fourth Soviet spy revealed. Oscar Seaborer worked at the Los Alamos National Laboratory during the nuclear bomb development in the 1940s. Although Seaborer was most likely first identified in 1956, he successfully provided information to the Soviets about the development of explosive triggers for a nuclear bomb. The Hazardous Device Schools in Alabama As the amount of improvised explosive devices in the U.S. continues to increase, the FBI created the Hazardous Devices School in a remote area in Alabama to train bomb squad officers across the country. Nearby in Huntsville, Alabama, is a neighboring facility, the Terrorist Explosive Device Analytics Center. There are no aliens inside of Area 51. Well, I'll believe it when I see it. I don't, I don't know it for sure, but uh, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. While heavily guarded and secure, Area 51 has been a place that has long fascinated the extraterrestrial obsessed. However, the big secret of the protected base is that there are no aliens there. Instead, the remote location is used as a test site for American-made classified devices like aircraft communications and weapons. Um, who wrote this article? The Pentagon? Yeah, interesting. Um, I have heard a theory about Area 51, though, that basically it's a diversion. It's become so famous for things like Bob Lazar and that, that there's really not a lot going on there now. And that it's basically being used to get everybody to pay attention to Area 51 while things are going on at other bases like Dugway in uh, Utah, etc. And a lot of people in the know say that's what's going on. They just move things around there to make it look like things are going on, but there's not a lot going on. Well, anyway, folks, <clears throat> that ended up being a lot longer than I thought, so I do apologize for that. And uh, we'll get on to the next few here, and we'll try and get out of here. This might be a two-hour episode, after all. Okay, this is from um, Euronews.green. Scientists solved the mystery of how Easter Islanders were able to drink water straight from the sea. And I didn't know about this, so I was quite interested. And it says, uh, Easter Island residents were observed drinking water from the ocean. Scientists have finally understood how. And this is from Parissa Hash Hashimpur. 
and it's from the 27th of September. When Europeans first arrived at Easter Island, they were surprised to see indigenous people drinking directly from the sea. Along with the island's famous giant Maui's, uh, uh, sorry, Moai statues, this quirk of nature has added, was added to the local list of mysteries, along with the Rongo Rongo script, I would assume. Researchers later learned that the drinking water supply came from freshwater coastal seeps, but this month, uh, sorry, but this month they uncovered even more. With the help of drones, researchers gained a deeper understanding of how the people of Rapa Nui historically harnessed the water supply to, nour to nourish local communities. This research may even pave the way for future studies of water, drought, and drought prevention. <clears throat> According to Robert Di Napoli, a postdoctoral research associate in environmental studies and anthropology at Bing Bing uh, Bingington University, rainwater at Easter Island sinks directly through porous bedrock into an underground aquifer. This then surfaces along the coastline as something known as coastal seeps, pockets of fresh water that trickle into the ocean. And there are places in the ocean, especially near river um, mouths and that, like the Amazon, where you'll get uh, water, fresh water floating on salt water. I think that's how it works. It could be the other way around. The study conducted by DiNapoli and fellow researchers at Binghamton University adopted modern technology to locate pockets of this coastal seep, allowing for a more systematic approach to finding fresh water. The researchers utilized drone technology with thermal imaging cameras to identify the coastal seep, a uh, practice used in similar studies in places such as Hawaii. <clears throat> DiNapoli explains that at some of these locations on the shoreline, there is so much water coming out of the seeps that it's basically fresh. It's somewhat salty, but not unpalatably salty. It's just not the best tasting water, basically. Anthropologists found in addition to harvesting fresh water from pockets of coastal seep, Rapa Nui's inhabitants built underwater dams in the ocean to keep fish, sorry, to keep fresh and seawater separated and constructed wells that redirected water from the aquifer before reaching the sea. The island is not home to any rivers or streams and has just three small crater lakes that can dry up through periods of drought. This means freshwater is a scarce necessity on the island. They were faced with a very difficult place to live and they came up with these interesting strategies for survival, says DiNapoli. It provides an interesting example of how the people there responded to the constraints of the islands, he adds. Places such as Easter Island are already prone to droughts due to limited supplies of fresh water. This makes them among the communities most vulnerable to water scarcity as climate change exacerbates such natural phenomena. The results of the present study will serve as a basis to spin-off research project. And that's about it, folks. Um, yeah, interesting little article, though. I'd never heard that, that they basically said that they... You know, European explorers saw people drinking water out of the sea. So that's an interesting little article. Another one uh, looks like another one of history's mysteries solved. Now, this is from coasttocoastam.com, and this is for Adrian and Nico, the uh, our chapter presidents in Texas. And this is from October 1st, and it says, Texas driver busted using skeleton in carpool lane. A Texas motorist with some serious dedication to the spooky season was busted trying to use the carpool lane with a skeleton riding shotgun. 
The wacky incident occurred along a highway near the city of Katy earlier this week and was detailed in a pun-filled Facebook post by the office of Ted Heap, Harris County Constable, Precinct 5. According to the department, officers had a feeling in their bones that something wasn't right when they spotted the vehicle with a peculiar passenger cruising along in the HOV lane. Our deputies saw right through this ruse and issued the driver a bona fide citation. The post gleefully re revealed, adding that after a sternum lecture, deputies wished him bon voyage. While the motorist deserves some credit for the seasonal shenanigans, we can't say it's the best skeleton we've seen used by someone trying to pull a similar trick. As a driver in Arizona, toting what might be best described as an unearthed body still takes the cake. So I've got a good friend here who's listened to a few episodes but doesn't listen all the time. And he's got an old uh, classic uh, Ford Thunderbird, and he's got a skeleton he keeps in that car. And many moons ago when I worked in the supermarket, we had a guy who worked with us, a meat cutter and a clerk. And uh, he got caught with a mannequin. Uh, no, sorry, it wasn't a mannequin. He had a... He put he put a baby cart in um, a, a baby bonnet, you know, basket in the seat. And when the cop pulled him over and said, oh, you got a baby because he, he was in the carpool lane. He said, oh, yeah. And then he just reached over and like tried to make make it look like the baby was moving. And the and the highway patrolman was just literally like laughing. And he goes, boy, how dumb do you think I am? But, yeah, it was a classic story when he told us why he was late to work. And he got this ticket. He showed us the ticket. That's why it was funny. Because the cop even drew smiley faces on it, you know. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's not hard to spot something like a skeleton when you're going through the carpool lane. So, um, yeah, interesting one. All right. So, next one here. And this is for Tua Day in India, our Indian chapter president. This is an interesting one. I hadn't heard of this. And this came out on September the 30th. It's also from Coast to Coast. And it's a video, and it says, Teenage girl in India allegedly cries tears of stone. In a curious case out of India, a teenage girl and her family say that she has been crying tears of stone for weeks, but not everyone is convinced that the curious condition is genuine. The strangeness reportedly happened or began on July 27th in the village of Gadia Baladaspur, when the young woman named uh, Chodni noticed that her left eye had begun producing pebbles when she cried. In the days that followed, the phenomenon re uh, purportedly contained, continued sorry, with the teen making between 10 and 15 of these stone tears per day. Her perturbed family began monitoring the worrisome situation shortly thereafter and have since collected a staggering 70 stones. They even went so far as to film a somewhat unnerving video which shows the pebbles as they emerge from the teenager's eye. However, experts have been consulted about the case, have expressed considerable skepticism over the alleged phenomena, with two uh, ophthalmologists insisting that Chodney's condition simply isn't possible. On the contrary, they argue that the teenager is most likely fabricating the weird ordeal, possibly as part of an attention-seeking hoax in coordination with her family. Should that be the case, it appears to have worked, although what the end game is for such a painful stunt might be anyone's guess. I'm just going to watch this video really closely here, folks. And as per usual, it's a link through YouTube. 
Okay, so so you can see the eyes are actually under her eyelid at the top, and then they 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 pull the eyelid up and the stone falls down. Yeah, definitely would be painful, and it's a good sized stone. Um, yeah, and then I can see why just from watching the video, people would be pretty skeptical because. You see the stone under the eyelid, you don't see it form, and then they pull up the eyelid, and then the stone falls out. But, yeah, um, painful. Definitely painful. Interesting little video. I might uh, I might send it to Tuaday and see what she thinks, and get back to you folks, because she is our expert on the ground in India. But folks, so we've got two more here, one short and one a little longer. The first one is from Coast to Coast AM again. And this one was from September 30th, and it says, Ghost Dog Photographed in Arizona? Question mark. A lot of these end with questions, and I forgot to, I forget to mention it. An Arizona woman suspects that an eerie image captured by her home security system shows the spirit of her late dog beside her. The spooky photo, which can be seen below, was reportedly posted by Reddit earlier this month by Angelita Casale, who marveled that her dog Rocky had passed away August 31st and I think this is evidence that he's still by my side. According to her, the scene occurred as she and her husband were returning for dinner one evening and at the time did not notice anything unusual in the driveway. However, her husband checked out the latest footage from their security camera a few days later and noticed something unusual. In the image, a puzzling form can be seen off the side of Angelita and the weird anomaly appears to spout or sport four legs. Upon looking at the picture, she did not immediately spot the oddity, but when her husband pointed it out to her, I came to the realization that the shape resembled Rocky. I started crying happy tears at what I was seeing. While many observers online indicated that they thought the curious form might have been Angelita's late dog and shared similar stories of their pet pooches returning in spirit form, more skeptical people suggested that the apparition was merely the product of a motion blur. While the explanation may solve the mystery for some, it may not matter very much to Angelita, who mused that I'm no expert, but I don't know much about motion blur. To me, it looks like my dog, and I was excited to have my own proof. For anyone who has ever lost a beloved pet, her perspective is certainly understandable. What's your take on the peculiar picture? Is it Rocky stopped by Angelita's home one last time, or merely a trick of light and shadows? And unfortunately, folks... um. Her, the photo, which was posted on Reddit, has been removed. And I'm just going to click on the link in the article. Uh, because sometimes, if you go in the article, you can find... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, if you go there, then you follow the link. Just click in the article. It says um, reported or reportedly something like that. And there's a hyperlink. And you just click on that and it will take you to a express.co.uk article. And there's a picture. Yeah, it is hard to tell. It could be motion blur. But I see what they're saying. I, I can see why people would think that it could potentially be a dog. Because, I, I mean, it is close. Um, but I wouldn't... You know, if, if you said to me, oh, you got something good that's uh, that's proof... Uh, you know, like a good ghost photo, uh, I wouldn't put it in quite at that level. But I would put it in better than 
some, let's say. Sorry, folks, I was just thinking about how I would uh, contextualize it for you. Okay, so the next one here, and the last one, marathon episode. Okay, now this one is from Mexico. And this is just also happens to be for Adriana and Nico. Um, and this one said, this is from Vice, and it says, These men were struck by lightning. Now they talk to the rain. Climate change is changing the lives of Mexico's, uh, let's see, Tlalocs. So it's, it's an Aztec word, folks, so I'm going to do my best to remember to pronounce it that way. The farmers chosen to please the god of rain and lightning. And then it says, this article originally appeared on Vice Espanol. And it's from the 30th of September, and it's from Vico Rodriguez was the writer. A humble, soft-spoken man dressed in blue jeans and a hat, Gerardo Paez is a uh, Tot a present-day assistant to Tot the Mexican god of rain and lightning. In a room in his home, close to uh, <laughs> Izaquitatol, an active volcano in central Mexico. I'm doing my best to pronounce this because it's not Spanish, folks. It's actually Aztec or Mayan, a lot of these words. That's a Mayan word, I know. Stands an altar adorned with fruits and candles. In front of the, of the altar is a huge cross, upon which a corn cob takes Jesus Christ's traditional place in a tableau of eternal suffering. Here the uh, Amacameca municipality of Mexico state everything is dedicated to currying favor with uh, Tlatloc, he who makes things sprout. If the Tlatloc's uh, ritual mission is successful, he or she will re receive the divine message the community are waiting for. Farmers blessed by Tlatloc can prepare themselves and the cornfield for the season ahead. Tlatloc's respect uh, its acutal and talk to the rain. They communicate with moss, forest, and air. Uh, messages come to them in dreams, messages they obey. The inspiration for Paez's altar came to him in one such dream. Upon waking, he shared his vision with his neighbors, one of whom told him she'd had a similar dream, that she knew how to make the offerings Tatlok had requested in her shared uh, somnambulant, um, so, you know, um, so in her dreams, basically. I don't know why some words you read it and you're like, why would you try and use that word in an article? Every believer in the community brought what they could for the shrine. Pine branches, flowers, crops, mole, guavas, confetti, candlesticks, censers. Everything became part of the ritual. It all plays a role in making a connection with the spirits. Without the offerings, there is no bridge to the beings above. Paez has asked if there's anything I want to contribute to his altar. All I had on me were a few beers and some unfiltered cigars. That was fine, he told me. It will be accepted as it comes from the heart. Tlatlokes have a high status position in their community. Becoming one involves an initiation process. In addition to become dedicated to one's community and having a deep knowledge of local history, culture, landscape, and meteorological idiosyncrasies, you've got to survive a lightning strike. One afternoon I was working the land and at exactly 4 p.m. I saw a light, saw its edges. I felt the force of the lightning. It felt like it had whipped me and I was thrown about 5 meters back. So that's about 15 feet. 
Paez says of the day he was anointed by the god of rain. I felt a burning in my arm and quickly undressed myself. I was taken to the village's Mayora, a wise and respected woman who has amassed a huge amount of magical ancestral knowledge and who possesses the power to heal physical and emotional discomfort through ritual, and I was cured. Paez told her of his dreams. She listened to me and said, From now on, you are the guardian of the Sacramonte, a hill considered sacred since pre-Hispanic times and now part of a national park. You are the chosen one. He is now one of seven Tatloks in the uh, Amicameca area and surrounding communities in the Zona de Volcanes, Spanish for Zona Volcanoes. As the towns on the slopes of the volcanoes, Papacatmepetel and it's it's a cool hotel are known. Yeah, uh, sorry folks, that Mayan is uh, tricky. Each of the Tatloks is thought of as a guardian of a specific mountain chosen by Tatlok for a for the task. Once the Tatlok is sure of his mission, instructions are passed to him in his dreams, and he regularly climbs to the top of his ordained peak to present offerings at designated times. Every May, the Tatloks are set up altars atop their respective mountains or hills. The purpose of these early summer visits is to plead for the rain needed for a year of agricultural prosperity. Come across any one of these altars and you'll find offerings like tobacco, apples, rice, and plum jam. These edible votives must be laid according to, according to rigorous rules, placed correctly to ensure that the ire of the gods is calmed and the waters flow in favor of the local community. Dr. Mauricio Ramses Hernandez, who works at the National Institute of Anthropology and History of Mexico, says the cult of water and mountain is fundamental in these cultures. From uh, Tatlokan, from the underworld, emerge lively meteorological forces such as rain, thunder, lightning, rainbows. And the cult is of such fundamental importance for a simple reason. It provides food. Uh, Amicamicans have a strong connection to the land. Many plant maize criollo, a corn, a corn grown for both sustenance and for medicinal purposes. The sense of kinship with crops and fields they grow is, they grow in means locals are, by and large, incredibly attuned to changes in weather. The droughts the area experiences most years are getting longer. They used to last six months, says Jaime Ariza, an American farmer. Now it's seven. The climate is changing. The rains are changing, and we see all this playing out on our cornfields. These changes mean that Ariza and fellow farmers are facing new agricultural challenges on a daily basis. Corn has to be sown months later than before, and a major new pest has made itself known. Magpies have begun to arrive, Ariza says. They've now got to formulate methods to ensure that the lively birds don't consume too much of their crop. Before, you'd never see them flying around these parts. This is how we know things are changing. The weather is not reliable. The sky changes. The warming is a cleansing process of what doesn't work. The earth will renew itself. The question is whether we will be part of this ecosystem, Paez says as we drink some pulques, an alcoholic drink made from fermented agave sap with Ichiquatl, uh rising behind us. That's a heck of a mountain. Just got a photo of him. Earlier this year, the volcanic community caught the attention of international broadcasters because of the death of the uh, Eoloco Glacier, one of the last remaining in Mexico, which had been located on the slopes of uh, Itztecuatl. 
We're currently at the warmest part of the glaciation process, says uh, Hugo Delgado, a researcher at the National Autonomous uh, University of Mexico's Department of Volcanology. Precipitation and aridity patterns are changing. Human activity leads to greenhouse gases, which exacerbate the effects of global climate change. One of the many consequences of the slide into climate apocalypse is the inevitable death of Mexico's glaciers. It's a conclusion that the Totlokes themselves would likely agree with, even if their methodology differs from volcanology departments the world over. Both responses rely on deep observation. For the Totlokes, there's the change in firefly mating rituals, the changing color of moss, the rustling of the trees. Anthropologist, uh, anthropologist Ramses Hernandez, in his book uh, Nahulalak, Relatos sobre uh, ofrendas contadas en el Ichuacan, uh, story of offerings at uh, Ichuacuatl, sorry, I pronounced the volcano wrong, argues that for the Totlokes of uh, Ameca Kamaka, there is no division between the self and the landscape they inhabit. The ritual is the ancestral knowledge that intends to regulate the human life in society with nature, he writes. Under a rural logic of uh, reciprocity in relation to the cosmos, nature, and and deceased with the saints. Maintaining that connection is why Paez and his colleagues climb their mountains when the call beckons. The Totlokes complain about new generations who they see as ignoring long-standing traditions, rituals etched in the soil. They expect a magician to pull a rabbit out of a hat, Paez says as calmly as ever. They believe in a lot of fantastic things, but the real magic lies in being in sync with nature. Perhaps hoping that we'd pick up some sense of his divine feel for the natural world, Paez escorted us up Sacramonte that evening. As darkness encroached and rain clouds heaved on the horizon, all was quiet. This was where we'd been, where he'd been struck by lightning, where the rituals that make up Paez and his community's lives play out. This was where the feeling of the innate kinship between the man and his environment was most deeply felt. This was the place Gerardo, uh, Gerardo Paez worships. So, folks, I made it through uh, those articles somehow. Uh, my throat is killing me right now, and I do appreciate you sticking around and listening. And I hope that you have a great week, and we will catch up soon. If you want to get a hold of me, you know how. Take care, my friends, and I'll talk to you as soon as I can in future. Take care.